It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 516, The Hollingsworth Clan, Part 2. In this week's episode, we analyzed all of the statements, the interviews, and trial testimony of Narlene Hollingsworth in her testimony against Damian Eccles that was used at his trial. That testimony was a stanchion of the state's case. It is the only eyewitness testimony at all that puts any of the defendants anywhere near the crime scene on the night Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were killed. In this week's episode, we compared her statements with the statements of other family members and really against her own statements, too. I mean, her she contradicts herself quite a bit to see if the, if the sighting itself has any legs and if it still should be considered evidence against Damien Eccles. Uh, and this week's episode generated quite a bit of feedback from the listeners. So, Mike, let's go ahead and get started and get right into the listeners' questions and comments. All right, Bob, that sounds good. Okay, Bob, first you want to talk about our potential new project. Yeah, so Mike and I have been trying to come up with ideas as to how we can uh, generate a little more revenue in order for us to be able to do things like we did in our last season's cases, where we were able to fund a portion of DNA testing in the Edward Eights case and in the Jesse Eldridge case. Uh, and there also, you know, with as our project expands here, there's a lot more travel involved. We've already made five or six trips down to Arkansas, plus one to New York City and one to Austin, Texas for this case. And and so we're trying to figure out a way that we could offer more content to all of you listeners, some, some added value for Patreon supporters. So those of you that don't know, we do have a Patreon page. And as the great businessman that I am, I have no idea what our Patreon web address is. Yeah, I um, don't either. But if you go to it, it's something, I think it's uh, patreon.com slash truthandjustice. But if you just go to our website, truthandjusticepod.com, there's a link to our Patreon page. And for those of you that don't know what Patreon is, it is where you can pledge a monthly donation to uh, certain projects, a lot of independent um, people that do creators as far as you know, people that make books and blogs and podcasts uh, use Patreon. We've had one for years. We never advertise it because it just it feels like asking for money. 
But in this case, we have an idea where we might be able to add some added value to people who might want to donate on Patreon. So, But the first thing we need to know is, do you have any interest in us doing this? Because it does add more work on our end. And what we're considering doing is for the Friday follow-up episodes, like we're doing right now, we will record, video record the entire process of Mike and I recording the Friday follow-ups. And for those of you that stick around when the credits are over in these episodes, you hear some of the outtakes. And it, I, I can't promise it'll be really entertaining, but there is a lot of things that happen that you never hear on the podcast. And that's mostly due to Mike doing an outstanding job of you know editing and making it a smooth listen. Hey, thanks, Bob. Yeah, a solid piece of business you yeah. do every week. But usually if you're hearing a 45-minute episode, we've been here behind the microphones for an hour and a half or more sometimes. Uh, so there's a lot that's happening. And we thought maybe there are people that would like to see the full uncut videos of us creating the Friday follow-ups. So this is our idea, uh, that we may start recording the Friday follow-ups on video, uncut, and then publishing them to Patreon. And any Patreon supporters that pledge $3 a month or more will have access to those videos right on the Patreon page. So th that's all it is. Uh, what we want to know, and if you get, you know, through Facebook or Twitter or through email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, uh, let us know. We want to get a feel for if anyone would be interested in doing that, if it would be worth uh, donating $3 a month to the cause. And uh, in exchange for that, we'll be adding the value of you can go and watch the videos of us recording these Friday follow-up episodes. And if not, then we'll just move right along and... Uh, I think Mike will be happier about that because doesn't particularly like being on camera. Yeah, not a big fan of it, but here we are. Anything <laughs> for the listeners, right? Yeah. Uh, and with that being said, again, let us know what you guys think and let us know if this is something we should pursue. And other than that, Mike, I think we can get right into your outline. Okay, first we're going to hear from Tammy in California in her voicemail. Hey, Bob and Mike. My name is Tammy. I'm calling from sunny central California. And I was calling about, my question is, if the investigation is really focused on trying to find justice for the, um, the three boys. Shouldn't we maybe at this point stop uh, reporting on any of the connection to the West Memphis Three? Since I think at this point, you know, we've kind of uh, decided that they were innocent. So anyway, my, I guess my question is, maybe we, is there a way we could just focus on trying to uh, figure out what really happened and what um, figuring out new clues and, and kind of that sort of thing and stop talking about uh, Damien and um, Jesse and Jason. Okay, thanks. Bye. To begin with, you have to realize, Tammy, that while you may have decided that you're certain of the innocence of the, quote, West Memphis Three, that opinion is not uh, certainly not universal throughout our audience. And and that's also just not the way that I work. I mean, it, it may seem to some people it seems very obvious. To some, it doesn't seem obvious at all uh, who completely disagree with it. But for me, the way, as I mentioned last week, we we start this process if we've decided through screening to take a case by throwing everything out and just starting at the beginning. And we always have to analyze. It's silly for us not to investigate and analyze the people who were originally convicted, because there's always the potential that they were actually correctly and justifiably convicted. So we can't, we can't stop talking about them because they're legitimate suspects. And so what we're doing as we start to work through this case, with the presumption of innocence on everyone, and then looking into, right now we're focused on Damian Eccles, but presuming that he's innocent, we're looking at the fact that the, the police and the prosecution 
they built a case against Damien, and, and that's a prosecutor's job. And so I saw actually just recently on a TV show somewhere where they said, and it was a very good analogy, that a prosecutor builds a case. Uh, it's like building a wall brick by brick. They put the different pieces of the case up, and then the defense's job is to try to knock the wall down. And in this case, we're looking at, you know, we, 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 had, we went after first motive. What was the state's theory of motive? Their theory of motive at trial was that this was a satanic ritual killing. That's why we went through Dale Griffith's testimony. That's why we covered all the Steve Jones and Jerry Driver stuff. And in my opinion, I, I do at this point have an opinion on that. And my personal opinion is that that's ridiculous. That, that if the three who were convicted of this crime were the ones that actually did it, uh, the state got the motive wrong. The, if they did it, I believe that they would have had to have done it for a different reason. I don't believe there was any ritualistic aspect of this crime whatsoever. So next, what I wanted to know is, does anyone put the convicted at the crime scene? Well, and as we look through the case, we find that the only person or people who have any sort of sighting that put Damien Eccles near or at the crime scene is Narlene Hollingsworth. And so we have to look and into her statements and decide, is that credible evidence? Uh, so we know the, well, I don't say we know, I feel that the motive is is ridiculous. And so now we're going to look into, is it possible that the two were actually at or near the crime scene? Uh, the two being Damien and Domini, but really the focus is on Damien. And so that's why we're going through this process now, uh, to see if that actually holds up as evidence. And really, in my opinion, after going through what we went through this week, there's certainly some questions as to the credibility of Narlene Hollingsworth and her statements, which I'm sure we're going to get into as Mike goes through the rest of his questions. But uh, to the short answer to your, your question, Tammy, is no, we can't move away from them yet because in my mind, we haven't cleared them yet. We haven't gotten far enough to clear them yet. And so we got to keep going after every stanchion of the state's case to determine if it actually has legs or if it was you know, rumor and fallacy. Okay, our first question comes from Gary. He says, most obvious question ever. If this sighting is legit, referring to the Narling Hollingsworth statement, why was Domini never a suspect? I think that's a really good point because it's, it's such a mixed bag to me. So the prosecution presents Narlene, and like I, I've said before on, uh, on another show that I was interviewing on, that if Narlene Hollingsworth's statement is legit, then it almost, it's almost more of an alibi. And I've been told that's ridiculous to say, and maybe, that, maybe that's true, but Dominique Tier was never part of the state's narrative, never. And so the state puts up, here's this woman and her whole family who saw these two people muddy and by the crime scene that night. Very damning. So, and then, and then they try to convince you that she's credible, everything she said is credible, but then, this, then they put a spin on it, but they were mistaken about Domini being her, you know, her niece, that, that she was mistaken about identifying her own niece and it was actually Jason Baldwin. So it's like we're supposed to believe they're credible and not credible at the same time. And I think it really goes to show that uh, the West Memphis police, I don't, I don't necessarily think they believed the Hollingsworths. And because of exactly that question from Gary there is that if they believed it, then Dominie should have been a suspect. But she wasn't. She was not a suspect. They were never after Dominie. It was always about Damien from the very beginning. And as I've said, I'm not saying that he's innocent. But again, he absolutely was targeted with zero evidence on day one of the investigation. And it's clear that they were never interested in Domini. All right. And Richard says, since the prosecution was arguing that Narlene was mistaking somebody else for Domini, did the defense argue that Narlene may also have been mistaken somebody else for Damien? 
I don't think they did. Um, and I haven't been through the entirety of the trial transcripts yet. I've been through a lot of them, but I haven't come across anywhere where they attack that. We did hear, you know, see the bench conference or when uh, the defense attorneys having an argument with with the judge, with Judge Burnett for allowing the state, which really I'm no lawyer, but that's prosecutors and defense lawyer attorneys. It's not like on TV. They're not allowed to testify. You know, on TV, you always see the defense, the defense attorneys or the prosecutors saying, but isn't it true that you actually went and did da 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 and you did this? They can't do that. All they can do is ask questions and get answers. And they can only present evidence that's been put into evidence. So you, you can't have somebody come up and say, I saw person X on the at the crime scene. And then, you know, in closing arguments, say so-and-so saw person Y at the crime scene. You know, they, they, normally that's not allowed. But I, I think that argument is all they really made. I don't think they ever really went much further with it than that. I think that, you know, and you would think that the jury would have seen through a lot of that. But um, and you may have questions on this later. And I'm sorry if you do. But people have said, well, how could the jury have bought this? It's so confusing. What you have to understand is that what the jury actually heard was Anthony Hollingsworth saying that he and Sombra were in the car with the entire family. And then Narlene, while she first said they weren't there, then she said they were. And that happened, if you read the transcripts, that, that, that exchange happened pretty quickly. So it's almost, it's almost like, like the podcast. Like we were just talking at the beginning of this podcast with the whole video thing, how there's, there's all this stuff that goes into it, and then it gets edited down and cleaned up to a finished product. That's exactly what the prosecution does in any case and did in this case. So you've got the conflicting statements of, of Richie, you've got the conflicting statements of Tabitha, the conflicting statements of Dixie, and then Narlene changing her statement all over the place. But by the time it gets to trial, they present a nice package to the jury where Narlene Hollingsworth gave her testimony, Anthony gave his, the two generally seem to line up. Uh, even with the sighting, with, with all of a sudden now Sombra's in the car identifying Stevie Branch when the, earlier in the afternoon. It was such a load of crap compared to her original statement, but the jury never doesn't know what her original statement was. They only hear her her final statement, and uh, disappointingly, the the defense didn't really challenge her on on that as much as I think that they should have by challenging or presenting her with her previous statement. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. As the episode goes on, you're definitely mentioning the Hollingsworths a lot more. There's a lot of them. A lot of listeners want to know about the members of the Hollingsworth family. There's a lot of names there. Can you help sort that out? Yeah, and a few people wrote in and said uh, it gets really confusing because people are calling their relatives by their first names. Like Anthony calls his mother Narlene instead of calling her mom. 
And Narlene calls Dixie Dixie, but then her kids call Dixie Grandma. Uh, and then there's, you know, in some of the statements, there in Damien's statements, and even in LG's, he says, oh, they're, he's kind of cousins with Domini. That's because, and if you go to the website jivepuppy.com, uh, they, they've done a really good job of tracking a lot of things with the case. And they have a family tree up there, and I would post on our website, but I, that feels like stealing their stuff. So go to their website and, and look at it. But this is why things are so tricky. So you have Narlene Hollingsworth was married to L.G. Hollingsworth Sr. L.G. Hollingsworth Sr. had a son named L.G. Hollingsworth Jr., who was Narlene's stepson. Narlene then gets divorced from L.G. Sr., and marries his brother, Ricky Sr. So that's why there's kind of a twisted fan. She was married to both brothers at one time or another. And then LG uh, remarries to a woman named Linda, who it seems like was actually LG's mother. So I, th- I think he was married to Linda Hollingsworth, got divorced from her, or at least had a baby with her, then marries Narlene, and then him and Narlene get divorced, and then LG and Linda remarry or get married. Uh, and, and then so now LG becomes Narlene's ex stepson nephew, and then and then moving up the family tree, Dixie Hufford was I believe Ricky Senior, her Narlene's husband's stepmother. She was married to his father. I don't think that she is actually his mother. I think she was a stepmother. But then they got divorced. So at one time, Dixie Hufford would be the stepmother-in-law of Narlene Hollingsworth, but then they got divorced. So, but, but then all of Narlene and Ricky's kids, which is Anthony, Ricky Jr., Tabitha, and Mary, Dixie is their grandmother because she was married to their grandfather. And then, so then Dixie Hufford's daughter is Diane Tear, and Diane Tear is Dominique Tear's mother. So if you can track that, and I'm sure I just made it even more confusing than it already was, uh, but so, because the, the big question was, how was Domini related to uh, Narlene? Because it seems there's no blood relation. I don't think that, unless Dixie is actually Narlene's mother, which I don't think she is. She is Ricky's ex-stepmother. Maybe Rick is Ricky's mother. And then Dixie had Diane, who had Domini. So they're, as LG put it, kind of cousins, but not really. Uh, but go to jipuppy.com and you can you can look at the Hollingsworth clan. It, it says on their family tree, and you'll see why the Hollingsworths are so confusing. Yeah, it looks like a spider web. That's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. Okay, and Matt says, so Ricky Hollingsworth put six people in Narlene's escort on their way to pick up a seventh. And he says that when she sees Domini and Damien, she wants to give them a lift. Is this a magic Ford escort? Yeah, it uh, does seem like it was a magic escort. You know, I think it's possible to actually fit all those people in there. But, man, you're talking about, you know, Anthony's an adult and Dixie's an adult. And a Ford Escort is not very big, even a station wagon. So you're looking at four adults, two 14-year-olds, and uh, Mary. Is that seven? Who am I missing? Yeah, and Tabitha, who was 16. So, okay, so you have four full-grown adults, a 16-year-old. Two 14-year-olds, and I'm not sure how old Mary was, all in that car. Uh, and these aren't like the big, long station wagons. This is a very small, the back end of a Ford Escort is small. So 
So yeah, and I and I assume that all he's getting at is is that it seems pretty preposterous, and uh, and I agree. All right, and Christina says, how could anyone possibly see that Damien and Domini were muddy if it was 9.30 p.m. and they're supposedly both wearing black clothing? Not to mention they were passing them in a car, unless they slowed way down to almost a stop. So when you really break down all of Narlene's statements and testimony, it really becomes even more perplexing than that. So you're, you're looking at she's coming off, we think, the interstate and, and getting off an exit onto the, to the one-way service road which means there's no slowing down. So she's going 55 at a minimum, I would think, on that service road when she gets off, and it's dark out, and there's no... We have confirmed, uh, listener Don McElhaney did some research and confirmed there was no streetlights at all. There were no streetlights at that time. So all she has is her lights, and and so if you look at the amount of time from when your headlights hit the people on the side of the road until you pass them, and then she said she turned her brights on, you're talking about a fraction of a second or a second when they were in view. And then you've got, she had this conversation with her husband about, should we pick him up? Should we not? Should we stop? And then later we got the, uh, she just strangely got ill at all at the same time. And so when you, when you factor all that together, it's like she did like three minutes worth of stuff, according to all of her statements together within a second or two. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, and then to identify the clothing that she's wearing is far all the way down to the hole above the knee and the flowers on her pants and the fact that they were both muddy. And I think, in my opinion, Narlene really gave a lot away when she said, I know it was Dominique's clothing because I saw her wearing that same outfit two or three days later. To me, when they were trying to give the description, if she's lying, uh, if the whole thing is made up, then she needed to name you know, an outfit, clothes that Domini actually owns. And so she saw her wearing this outfit probably around the trailer park days later and said, okay, that's the the outfit that I can say she was wearing. All right, we got this from Isaac. Just thinking about the witness account, how far is the walk from Robin Hood Hills to Damien's house? Does Jesse live in the opposite direction? Why wouldn't they see all three suspects walking? Okay, so the layout is Jason Baldwin lives in Lakeshore Estates, which is northwest of the crime scene. Jesse Miss Kelly lives in the Highland Trailer Park, which is also northwest of the crime scene, east of Lakeshore Estates. So if you go up the the road to the north, off to the left is going to be where Jason Baldwin lives, off to the right is Jesse Miss Kelly, but they would travel the same road to get back that way. Domini lives in the same trailer park as Jason, but Damien lives in the Broadway trailer park, which is the complete opposite direction. He lives, the, the Broadway trailer park is southeast of the entire neighborhood where these boys lived. So it's the complete opposite direction. Uh, so yeah, that just, that other, and, and we're going to get into an episode where we really start to track Damien's movements based on the sightings of him. And you're going to be amazed at how many places that he supposedly was at the exact same time. Anna says, this may be an assumption, but are they going to say that since Jason Baldwin had long red hair, that Narlene mistook Domini for Jason? Because I just don't see Jason wearing pants with flowers on them. And speaking of Domini's pants, Narlene said she had seen Domini in those same pants a couple days before, which you just mentioned. Is she sure of the dates? She seems to change things around a lot. You know, I think it, it may have been after or before. I'm not sure. She, she may be right about if it was before or after seeing her in the, that, that outfit, but yeah, she changes everything around a lot. And the thing was, Narlene was insistent. You know, they, the the investigators 
really tried to see if maybe she had mistaken Domini for someone else, and she just continually doubled down on the fact that no, that's my niece. I wouldn't, mis- I could never mistake her for anyone else. That was absolutely Domini. Also, there's two sides to the whole Anthony situation. There are some listeners who wonder about his alibi and if he could be considered a suspect, and there's others who think his past offenses are not relevant. What do you think, Bob? I don't know yet if they're relevant, but but here's the thing. We're lo- we're looking at everyone with a presumption of innocence, but not not ignoring any possible suspects, including obviously the three convicted. And so Anthony Olson comes on the radar to me he is a registered sex offender. He he has access to the area, and his victim was a minor. So, in my opinion, it could be nothing, and it's probably nothing. But this is a guy who has a known history of harming children. Okay, and let that sink in for a minute. He has a known history of harming children, and it's interesting when a lot of people who really want to talk about Damien's past things, you know, that he said he was going to eat his father and he's got pentagrams on him and, and he's, you know, he's threatened people, threatened adults here and there, or, you know, there's accusations of him hurting animals or something. But, but then we want to ignore the fact that we have someone who, this is the thing with Anthony. He has a known history of harming children. He has access. He is the exact same distance away from that crime scene as Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly. He has the same access that they had. Also, you have him inserting himself into the investigation. First, his mother inserting herself into the investigation. And then later, Anthony, who was left out, now inserts himself into the investigation, which again could mean nothing. It's a myth that you know, the killer always does this, but it's not a myth that the killer sometimes does this. So all of a sudden, there's this guy on the radar with the same access, a history of harming children, who's inserted himself into the investigation. Is he a suspect? I would say at this point, we're not focusing on that, but he is, I would, I would call him a person of interest. I would like to know where Anthony Hollingsworth was that night, for sure. Just for no other reason, just to rule him out. But I definitely would disagree with somebody that says his past offenses aren't relevant. I will add the caveat to that, though, uh, that there were uh, some people that were concerned about outing a victim or doxing or naming a victim because that's not fair to them. And that I 100% agree with that you, you we won't be talking about uh, his offenses in that kind of detail for that exact reason. But the fact that he committed those offenses is, in my opinion, absolutely relevant. OK, we've got this from KT. KT writes, I noticed that Tabitha, who is quite young, admittedly is asked and specifically states that they were not driving down the service road, but along the interstate, whereas Anthony states they were driving along the service road. That's a pretty major discrepancy. What do you think, Bob? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's, and I don't mean to brush any of these off, but it's like, everything's a discrepancy. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. If I was, you know, analyzing these statements against each other, her saying that they were on the interstate and Anthony saying that they were on the service road, she does say they were by Blue Beacon, so I kind of took that to mean that they were on the interstate and then exited off onto the service road right there at 7th Street. Maybe that's what she meant. Uh, so then because then she says we were right by Loves and Blue Beacon. But that's not the only thing. To me, that's less significant. She's in the car and maybe not quite paying attention to exactly where they're at. That's less significant than, say, her saying we were right there by the Blue Beacon when we saw him. 
and Narlene saying that we were uh, by the yellow stake by the off ramp to the highway, which is almost a half mile uh, to the west of there, other side of Seventh Street. Then Anthony saying they were west of Seventh Street. And then Narlene saying that after they passed them and had the discussion and she pulled over to vomit, they were then by Blue Beacon. Everything is conflicting. And then keep in mind, small car, packed full of people. And this is something that uh, I don't know if anybody asked about it, but I want to make sure we make this point, is that Anthony specifically testifies that he was on the passenger side, the right side of the car, uh, against the door on the way before they picked up Dixie. And so, and then Ricky would have been the, the father sitting in front, directly in front of him in the front seat. Ricky had the best view of anyone of the two people on the right side of the road, front seat, right side. He said he couldn't identify them. Anthony says he absolutely can identify them, same side of the car on, in the back. Okay, makes sense. But then Tabitha says that. She could absolutely identify them. Well, where the hell is Tabitha sitting? At best, she's in the middle seat, uh, which means she's looking through Anthony and through her dad to see out. Or she's all the way on the other side of the car. They're just there are people that are saying they saw stuff that weren't in a position to see anything. If that if that makes any sense. And then of course add to that the fact that she says this whole conversation about it happens with Dixie. That's the biggest damning part of it all. When Dixie says, "Yeah, Ricky and Arlene picked me up," and uh, and and we talked about LG showing up. Nothing at all. And you know for a fact, I, I guess I got to be careful saying for a fact, but you know, I I feel like I know that the police absolutely the whole purpose for them talking to her would have been to they would have they would of course talk to her about Narlene's sighting the night she picked him up. She's part of Narlene's all the, all of her statements and the kids' statements. And so I would assume they asked her about it. And and what we get in the report is Narlene will exaggerate. That's all. Listener Juliana was curious. She wanted to know, could Dixie have been the anonymous tipster? I don't think so. I think that the tipster heard something about it. To be honest with you, I think the tipster was someone who lived in the trailer park and overheard Narlene talking to someone. You know, as, as we said, the bones of that tip are all throughout Narlene's statements uh, as, as far as LG. Now, now you, and you heard Dixie say that he heard that the mother would lie. Um, so maybe it's someone that overheard Narlene talking to Dixie. I think that's possible, but I don't think Narlene or Dixie were the anonymous tipster. I think that whoever called it in overheard conversations between them, or they, you know, Narlene or Dixie said something to the tipster. That's possible too. But no, I don't think it was either one of them. Okay, this one comes from Trafina. I'm pretty sure I read in Dominie's statement that they walked from Jason's uncle's house to the laundromat to call his mother to pick them up. Would they have to walk anywhere near where Narlene says she saw them to get to the laundromat? Maybe Narlene was out earlier in the evening and saw them, not at 10 p.m. I think that's possible, uh, but no, they didn't have to walk near the crime scene. Uh, Jason's uncle lived west of 7th Street, actually I think west of Missouri Street, which is the next street over to the west, uh, and I believe the laundromat, and, and other people had questions about them being picked up at the laundromat, different laundromat. According to Damien and Dominie and Jason, after when Damien and Dominie left, they went to a laundromat to get picked up by Damien's mom because they called from a payphone. That laundromat was on Missouri Street, I believe, quite a long ways away from the crime scene and very far away from the flash market laundry where all of, where Dixie worked. All right, let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll get back to the show. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is from Jonathan. One of my first gut feelings about this case was that the person or persons who did this were never even on the police radar. Does anyone else feel this way? Well, I, I can say that, yeah, I agree with that. Because I really don't think anyone else was on the police radar. Now, in saying that, the police did investigate several people. We're going to get into, in this week's episode, just polygraphs. The police actually polygraphed like 41 people in this case. So they did look at other people and look at other leads, but it just it doesn't seem that they they really went after anyone else. You know, they, they once they decided that Damien was their guy, I don't think that they ever really looked hard anywhere else. I mean, you can go through the police files and see that they investigated other people, but you also see weird excuses. For example, you know, other people failed polygraph tests. And they said, well, they, we can explain that because they were on psychosomatic drugs, and that's probably why they failed the test. And there's actually an expert that came in later and analyzed the polygraph test and how they were conducted. And they said the same thing, that, that certain psychosomatic drugs will cause uh, bad readings in the polygraph. But Damien was on psychosomatic drugs when he took his. So it's like they, just, they weren't consistent in the way they evaluated evidence all the way through. So they did look other places, but they were much more objective with everything else, uh, much more so than they were with anything that related to Damian Eccles and then later Jason Baldwin and uh, Jesse Miss Kelly. So yeah, because of that, I think that it's possible that the police likely spoke with the killer if Damian, Jason, and Jesse were not the killers, uh, that they spoke with the person that actually did perpetrate the crime and just missed it. So, I, yeah, I don't think they were really, I, the way he put it was on the radar, and I would agree with that. I think that I, the person that probably actually did this, if the three convicted weren't the ones that did do it, uh, they probably were not on the radar, because I think the only ones that were ever really on the radar were the three that were ultimately convicted. Okay, and I want to share this theory from listener Wendell Mass. He really put a lot of time into this, and he writes, So my theory on how the Hollingsworth tale evolved and got so complicated. He has eight points here. Number one. Narlene and Ricky pick up Dixie. Number two, Dixie tells them she just saw LG leave in a strange car. Her concern about seeing LG was not because he was laundering clothes, but because the car he left in was not Richard Simpson's, which is the one he would have normally been spotted in. Number three, Narlene finds out the boys are dead, remembers hearing about LG, and hears the children's story about the stinky box. Number four, Narlene sees the police interrogating Damien. Number five, Narlene tells the police her initial story, tying all these things together. In the process, she adds people to the car that can be witnesses, but deliberately leaves out Anthony. Number six, Narlene tells Ricky Sr. that she told the police they saw Damien and Domini and that the whole family was in the car. Number seven, Ricky Sr. interprets whole family as meaning Anthony included and mentions Anthony in his statement. And number eight, now the police want to talk to Anthony too, and he is forced to give a statement. For some reason, he decides to add Sambra. The only thing I still can't figure out is why she named Domini at all. All right, there's a lot to take away from that, Bob. So where do you want to start? For starters, 
I appreciate the time that Wendell put into trying to analyze everything that happened and kind of bullet point things that really it's a theory as far as how all of this came to be. And I think he's right about a lot of things, but there's a few things that don't quite add up. And to begin with, we have Anthony. It's important to point out that Anthony was interviewed by the West Memphis PD on May 25th, whereas his father wasn't interviewed until December 7th. So Anthony didn't enter because Ricky Sr. added him into the story, believing that that's what Narlene wanted him to do when she said the whole family, because Anthony spoke with the police first, at least as far as what's documented. You know, it's possible the police spoke with him and didn't document the interview. We don't know that. But according to the official record, that doesn't seem to be the case because Anthony was interviewed first. Okay, and then another good point he made is that Narlene talks to Dixie and Dixie is concerned about the car LG was in uh, rather than being concerned about LG laundering clothing. It's important to point out that this whole scenario began with a tip that said that LG had washed Damien and Dominique's clothing for them that night. And again, I think that's a misinterpretation of maybe an overheard conversation about LG being at the laundromat when when he's right here, Wendell's right, that uh, the concern was the car that he left in and that he asked for Dominique's number. But it, it also, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast, in the episode, it also, there's some conflicting statements there too. So the whole idea that LG washed Damien and Dominique's clothing certainly doesn't add up because according to Dixie, LG didn't wash any clothing. He just came up and he asked for Dominique's number. And, and then again, at the same time that he's at the laundromat, according to Dixie, Narlene says she sees Damien and Dominique walking the other way a mile away from the laundromat in muddy clothing. Uh, and then I think some listeners on the fan page, uh, somebody had come up with a theory that maybe LG was at the crime scene and Damien and Domini took their clothes off and waited in the woods naked or in their underclothing while LG went to the laundromat, washed the clothes, brought them back, and then Damien and Domini got back into the clothing that are now clean but then went back down into the crime scene to take care of something that they hadn't previously taken care of. And I think the person that posted this was saying that like this is the best they could possibly come up with to try to make all this fit. Uh, I don't think they actually believe that's what happened. And, it, and it's not. It can't. I mean, first of all, that just sounds ridiculous. Dixie doesn't say that LG came in. And obviously, she's saying that LG's mom's going to lie for him. She's not protecting LG. Kind of throwing him under the bus, actually. And so she doesn't mention any of that. And then you have the fact that Damien... And Dominique would then, or 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 if it was you know mistaken, it was actually Jason would have been waiting in the woods, half naked, while the search parties are in the woods, you know, it, which is it, none of, none of that adds up at all to me. No. Okay, and we have this last question here from Lori. She writes, "I must have missed the piece about Dominique asking Narlene Hollingsworth to change her story. Where did this come from, and how credible is it?" Uh, probably about as credible as everything else Narlene said. So that's, and, I, and I'm not trying to say that sarcastically, but just, you, know, you all heard everything. We put everything out there that was said on the, on the subject, uh, and the, the transcripts of Narlene's complete testimony are available on the website. Uh, so you decide how credible she is, but it came from Fogelman pulling a, a dirty trick, actually. Fogelman asks Narlene, is it true, did Dominitier try to get you to change your story? or your account of the situation. And as she gets ready to answer, of course, the defense objects because you, you can't ask for hearsay testimony. If, if she said, Dominique told me this, that's hearsay. 
She can't do that. And Fogelman damn well knew that. Uh, but he wanted the jury to hear, in my opinion, he wanted the jury to hear that that was a possibility. And that's when the objection is happening and Narlene says, I'll answer it. And the judge says, no, don't answer it. Uh, and he sustains the objection because it's asking for hearsay testimony. So one could derive from that that Narlene, we can't say, I don't think, that Domini asked her to change her her story as fact. What we can say is it's likely a fact that Narlene said Domini asked her to change her story. And as I commented on the fan page, if that's true, I guess without sounding too dismissive, so what? If Domini wasn't on the service road, which if somebody else had written in uh, and said, is it true? Oh my gosh, you know, Domini's only alibi is her mother. You know, like it looks suspicious. Well, well first of all, no. Damien said that they dropped Domini off at home. Damien's parents said they dropped Domini off at home. Domini's mother said they dropped Domini off at home. Uh, in an interview that you're going to hear later that I did with Jason Baldwin, he says that while he was mowing the grass, Damien and Domini were kind of off to the side making out somewhere, and then they left Damien's mom, picked them up, and dropped them at home. All of those people's stories all say that Domini was dropped off at home. So that's Damien, Damien's mom, Domini's mom and Domini and Jason all say that that's what happened that night. So if that's true, which in my opinion is probably likely is true, uh, that Domini was dropped off at home that night. So if Domini, in fact, was at home at the time that this incident supposedly occurred and she lives in the same trailer park as Narlene, who's kind of sort of family to her, I would not find it out of the ordinary at all for Domini to say, what the hell are you doing? That didn't happen. You need to tell the police that didn't happen because it didn't happen. Now, it's also true that, you know, maybe she was guilty. If she was guilty, she would want her to change her story, too. But the same is absolutely true if she was innocent and she, beyond being innocent, if she just knows she wasn't out of the service road with Damien that night, well, full of mud by the crime scene, that she would also tell her, you need to tell them that that's not what happened. Uh, so that's where that came from. Narlene did not put that into the record, but it was clear from Fogelman's question that Narlene had probably told him that's what occurred, and the question wasn't allowed, so it never went into the record, but the jury already heard it. The, the damage was done the minute that Fogelman asked the question. That happens all the time, doesn't it? It does, and it's, and it's not a, uh, a dirty trick attributed only to prosecutors. We've seen it in all of our cases, in every case where the defense attorney will do things like that. You know, we saw in the Jesse Eldridge case, the defense, while somebody was on the stand, uh, the defense attorney asked him, isn't it true that you failed a polygraph test? And of course, object, object, object. And the judge puts a stop to it, tells the jury to disregard, but it's too late because they already heard. So even though it's not in the record, the jury already knows the guy failed a polygraph. So it's not, it's not something that's uncommon and it's not something that only prosecutors do. It's a common dirty trick by attorneys to try to get the jury to hear something that they're not supposed to hear. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. 
I want to thank Katie Ross of createdintandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. Also, thank you to Amanda Meyer, who designed and created our Friday follow-up logo. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. Or you can always follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And again, please don't forget that we would like your input if you might be interested in us putting out a video version of the behind-the-scenes recording of the Friday follow-up episodes, which we decided would require a Patreon pledge of $3 a month. Uh, So let us know if that's something you're interested in, if it's something we should mess with. And also, don't forget, you can always call in and leave us a voicemail 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. This doesn't seem accurate, to put it nicely. That's exactly right. I mean, that, <laughs> you didn't have to explain that. Jeez, right? You didn't have to. Well, I don't know. I would go... okay. All right, let me redo, oh, that. Let me redo I, that. I don't know. This is a confusing one. <laughs> let me redo that. Okay, this one comes from Trafina. Well done. Thank you. U n e x p l a i. How my. F- <laughs> It's not a hard. Okay, I'll do it. I feel like I always feel like you should like make a song, you know, like like Mickey Mouse, the Mickey Mouse song. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bring it together, Bob. See, Parcast makes sense to spell out. Yeah, nice and quick. Unexplained mysteries. Right. In their defense, the words unexplained and mysteries. Can throw a lot of people off in spelling. Who's ty- who's listening and typing that? Anyway, it's it's something. Harry's is all about a great shave at a great price. At a fair price. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price. I feel like with the cameras on, it almost helps us deliver better. Yeah. I don't know. It's not I'm stressing getting, me out at all. I'm getting that vibe off it. Yeah. All eyes on you. You want to perform. That's you right. You deliver a good line the first time. Yeah. One liner. That's right. One take. That's right. But it is... I also feel like I can't scratch my head. Why not? That they see me scratching my head. It's, that's not the weirdest thing you could do. That's <laughs> not even the weirdest thing I've done today. No. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. Nope. I'm Bob. We're. We're. Teamwork. <laughs> I never mess that up.